Yeah, I wish I wrote that. I didn't. But <laughs> Yeah, we show that, one, just to switch it up, but two, also, because we've been in this series called Long Division, we've been talking a lot about the ministry of reconciliation, what we're called to do, and, and he, sometimes it feels like what he talks about, work. You know, if we talk about vertical reconciliation, the fact that through the blood of Jesus Christ and his grace, we have a relationship with God the Father, I think we'd all agree that's the greatest gift we could ever receive. You know, if God gave us nothing else for the rest of, I know, my life, that's all the favor I need, that he has given me reconciliation with the Father. I can have a relationship with God the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. But then when we start talking about the ministry of reconciliation, the work of horizontal reconciliation, reconciling man to man and reconciling man to God and sharing the gospel, sometimes if we're honest, it feels less like a gift and more like work or a duty or, or like extra credit maybe we can put off. But I want to look at a passage that I've referenced a few times in this series. It's, it's where it talks about this ministry of reconciliation that we've been given. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to read verses 16 through 20. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 16 through 20. says, so, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, but how different we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Man, for my money, this is one of, in my opinion, the most beautiful passages in Scripture. You talk about 2 Corinthians 5.17, where it talks about being a new person and a new creation in Christ. It's probably the most memorized verse from that passage, the, the most prominent idea in that passage. But in my Bible, the heading of the entire passage reads the ministry of reconciliation. In the NIV, or maybe it's the New Living, it says we are God's ambassadors. Just this idea that we're saved to be new creations, but we aren't saved to sit on our hands. We're, we're saved to put our hands and feet to work on this ministry of reconciliation. This new life that we're given is not one that's focused inward. It's focused upward in reconciliation with God and then outward as we extend that reconciliation to man. There are three steady themes if you read through the whole book of 2 Corinthians. There's strength and weakness, servant leadership, but certainly this theme of reconciliation is throughout 2 Corinthians. We're going to hit a, a few verses from 2 Corinthians tonight. He goes as far as to say in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that to fail to be reconciled is to be outwitted by Satan. And after his call to be ambassadors of reconciliation in chapter 5, Paul goes on to say in, the, in chapter 6, this is in the message version, he says, Dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide open, spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly, 
and expansively. I was reading a book recently, one that I'll, I'll quote later, where the author was giving an account. They were on a church trip in a, a big old charter bus, and, and there was a gentleman on the bus who rubbed her the wrong way. Nothing about him was wrong, just everything from his style to his perspectives to his personality just kind of rubbed her the wrong way. It irked her. So she was trying to find ways on this trip. How do I distance myself from him on the bus? How do I just keep away from him on this trip? And then she was struck with the thought, I'm going to be spending eternity with this guy. Anybody ever been there? But then her thought was, and I quote, that's okay. Heaven is going to be a big, big place. Right? I mean, that's what the audio adrenaline they taught in the 90s, right? It's a big, big house, big, big yard, all that jazz. But when I read that, the idea of heaven being this big, big place and it happening on a, a, a bus, I thought of this, this classic by C.S. Lewis. It's a book called The Great Divorce. It's his dream of heaven and hell. The, the narrator in the book, he resides in the ever-growing expanse of hell. But he takes a bus available for those who desire to have a brief day excursion to another place, which is the outskirts of heaven. Now, it's fantasy, and in the introduction to the book, C.S. Lewis begs his readers to remember it as such, but it's a fascinating and profound look at spiritual choices. And in this book, The the Great Divorce, the boundaries of hell, they kind of expand like the universe. They just keep growing. keeps getting bigger and bigger. Hell in The Great Divorce is a big, big place. It takes centuries to get from one end to the other. And the reason is, as people take up residence in hell, they want to get as far away from one another as possible. Hell in the great divorce is you by yourself, content to be consumed by your pride eternally. It's not so much fire and brimstone as dull, gray, monotony, void of joy, void of life. In the great divorce, hell is isolation. And those in hell choose it as they're consumed with their agenda of self. And when the the main character, he he rides the bus, arrives at the outskirts of heaven in in this dream, and and he asks an angel, how do we get in? Where do we come from? Where is hell in association to where we are now? And kind of like something right out of Horton, here's a who, an angel lifts up the blade of grass and said, you came from there. Hell, which seems so expansive, was actually very tiny. And it just reflects this idea that a life consumed by self, consumed by pride, is a small life. It's shrunk down. Not the wide open, spacious life that God has called us to and he promises, but it's one that's lived small. There's a a, a phrase that St. Augustine coined called incurvatus in se. It's Latin. It means curved in on itself, curved in on oneself, a a life that's curved in on oneself rather than curved outwards towards other. There's little thought to others, little thought to the needs that surround us, only the needs within us. Again, the culture and climate of hell and the great divorce, it's not so much fire and brimstone, but the absence of anything outside of this inward bend towards self. You know, most people that go to hell aren't serial murderers or they're not committing genocides or these heartless crimes, but they're simply people consumed by self, a focus that's bent inwards and ultimately bent towards hell. There's a famous quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. But in each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. And it should give us pause. Because we realize that when we're left to our flesh in this life and we lose focus of the cross and don't wear that helmet of salvation we were talking about during communion, we begin to drift towards this bend towards self. 
where all arrows point to me, where I'm in center stage, where the world is one giant backdrop for my massive selfie, this inward focus that drifts towards isolation. And if I don't nip it in the bud, then as a, a pastor, I might get too concerned with the needs of the congregation and forget the city or community that I'm called to. Or as a church, if we have this bend, we can get consumed with keeping everything running smoothly within the four walls on a Saturday, but then forget the mission that we're called to during the week. And in the U.S., as it becomes more and more culturally diverse, statistics show that the church in America continues to become more and more homogenous. We often build community with folks that pretty much see eye to eye with us on most things. Living in community is often done with those who have a similar background, profess a similar faith and theology, because let's face it, cultural isolation, it's comfortable because people reflect us. But when our worship, we talked about this when we opened this series, when our worship becomes about what I need and my feelings and all about me, ultimately we begin to worship ourselves rather than God. We succumb to this inward curve towards self. And it's not just in our relationship with God in heaven, it's with others here on earth. I mean, a Christian these days could easily go most of our lives without significant time spent with those who are significantly different than us. It's because we seek out mirrors. We seek out reflections. It's like the Greek mythology narcissist who, who falls in love with his own reflection and refuses to leave his reflection until he starves and dies a tragic and lonely death. We're not called to live on a diet of self. But like narcissists who settle into his, next to his own reflection, we can sometimes settle into just cultural isolation amongst people who make us comfortable because they reflect us. They look like us. They think like us. But living a rich, culturally diverse life. It's not just about reconciliation out there. I think sometimes we can think of it as a, as a, a, a big issue for the church, a big issue for society. We think that uh, chasing after diversity and unity is, is something that the church does at large. So maybe if I don't do it, somebody else will step up to the plate. Or if I don't carry my weight, somebody else will carry the weight. But a life that pursues Diverse connections and unity. It's not just for the church or the greater community or just for the world. It's what's at stake is our heart. What's at stake is our own faith because a faith that's focused on self is no faith at all. You know, we, we can walk in smallness that comes from within ourselves, but we're called, like it says in Corinthians, to a wide open, spacious, and enriched life, not one that curves in towards self. But, you know, many outside of the faith, I've heard it described as this to people I'm in conversation with. They, they see religion or Christianity as a straitjacket that constricts us with do this, don't do that. But we, we realize, and the longer you follow Christ and obey Christ, you realize that these commands and these commissions that he gives us, the do's and the don'ts, they actually give us life. I was talking to the gentleman this morning at the men's retreat. Like, we have this command in the scriptures, like, a hundred times to sing. And as men, it's like... Really? Do I have to come together with a bunch of other people and sing? Like, that's not like on the top of a man's to-do list. But when you do that, group singing together in a crowd, there's, there's chemicals released in your brain that remove cortisol and stress. You just begin to realize the longer you follow God and learn that, man, these commands he's given me are actually good for me. <laughs> just the longer you follow it, you realize it. And this call to be reconciled to others and, and, and seek diverse connections, it's the same way. It's not some weight, burden, or, or work as much as it is a gift. 
Sure, it's a duty and we're called to it, but it, 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 it's a gift. It helps us break free from the inward bend and the inward pull of our flesh and step into a bigger life. A heart that's reconciled to God, it won't live with an inward curve, but it will, again, have a curve up that looks to God and out that looks toward reconciliation. Amen. We talk about hell and the great divorce, but even, like, when I joke about heaven with my wife, it's often focused on self. Like, we'll go through something, just have a, a rough week, and we'll be like, well, there's a jewel in your crown, right? Anybody ever say that, right? Or, like, so-and-so is going to have a mansion in heaven, right? The size of their home in heaven where it becomes almost like it's a, a private affair. But you look at the accounts of heaven, we'll join too many people to count from every tribe, nation, and tongue in worshiping God. It is a public event, heaven is. Maybe this is why, after stepping from heaven to earth, we, saw, we see Christ connecting with all different kinds of diverse people, from conservative theologians to liberal thinkers prostitutes, children, Roman soldiers, party animals, lepers, ethnic minorities, tax collectors, all the above. Jesus connected with all kinds of people from all different walks of life. He was used to what heaven will look like eternally, diverse. He wants the people that follow him and walk after him to reflect this life, to reflect this diversity that he walked in. Just because people were different didn't mean that Jesus kept them at a distance. Just because Jesus lived a life that was set apart didn't mean that he had to separate himself from people that thought different, looked different. It says in Galatians 3.28 that they're in Christ. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, we aren't called to settle into settings where all we're surrounded with is, is reflections of self. We're called to settle into Christ and in Christ and in a life lived in Christ. There's incredible diversity. And again, that's a gift. There's life in that. This pursuit of diversity is not just for the world out there. It's for our hearts. And it's not just some duty, but it's a gift. And I just want to show three ways tonight how this command, just like all the commands God gives us, this command of reconciliation, it's not just some, some burden or something that's, that, that keeps us hemmed in. No, it gives us this big life that God promises. And the first is that it sharpens us. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. Not sure there's a, a, a more quoted verse for men's ministry, <laughs> right? As iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. And here's the danger in lack of diversity. Because when we polarize into groups that all come from the same experience, the same perspectives, that group polarization, it decreases friction and it decreases growth, ultimately. You know, a good relationship will at times present challenges to our worldview. There's a healthy tension. Now, I'm not talking about some moral free-for-all. Like, we talked just last week about tolerance for people, intolerance. We don't tolerate untruth. I love that, you know, it's iron sharpening iron. Iron is firm, but yet iron can be sharpened. Sometimes the, the sharpening we need is simply a broader lens to see through. As we open our eyes or open our ears to hear a, a life experience or a perspective that's different than ours from a brother or sister in Christ. You know, one of the, in my opinion, one of the greatest symptoms of our sinful nature today is this sometimes narcissistic and subconscious way that we think our life experience is the only valid one, the one upon which all judgments should be made. And, and again, sometimes you don't need a new perspective, simply need a broader lens. The author Christina Cleveland, who I quoted earlier from that story on the bus, 
She once said that we often fail to make a distinction between evangelism and discipleship. People can meet God within their cultural context, but in order to follow God, they must cross into other cultures because that's what Jesus did in the incarnation and the cross. Discipleship is cross-cultural. When we meet Jesus around people who are just like us and then continue to follow Jesus with people who are just like us, we stifle our growth in Christ and open ourselves to a world of division. However, when we're rubbing elbows in Christian fellowship with people who are different from us, we can learn from each other and grow to be more like Christ. I was reminded again at this men's retreat this weekend, just the gift that church is. You can build community on social media, get to pick and choose who your friends are, but then you step into a church. And there's people in here I wouldn't hang out with. College juice wouldn't have, Justin, sorry, that was my nickname in college, wouldn't have been like, oh, let's hang out, right? But no, church is a gift because so many different backgrounds, perspectives that I ordinarily wouldn't step into and invite into my life. But God knows what's, what's good, and he invites us into community that can sharpen us. And the pursuit of diverse unity sharpens us. It also shatters bias. You know, the reality is often we fear what we don't know. It's useful in survival, right? Oh, you look at the history of mankind. It's useful that when we see something we're totally unfamiliar with, we don't just run at it. But it's also a weapon of the enemy. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It takes this to be reconciled to God vertically, but it also takes this when we're going to be reconciled to man horizontally. You know, imaginations and thoughts and bias about people we don't know. Because when you don't know about somebody's life or you don't know about an entire group of people, what are you left with? Thoughts, imaginations, whatever you might come up with, maybe even fear. Because, again, we fear what we don't know. It's, it's built into our brain, the amygdala in our brain where we see something we're familiar with and, and fear rises up. Again, it's natural, but it's where the enemy does his best work to get rid of these imaginations or this bias, we got to come to the table with people. Because if, if we have a brain, we have a bias. If you have a brain, you have a bias, just scientifically. When we say stuff like, well, I'm naturally objective, I'm colorblind, I'm unbiased, I'm impartial, we lie. When we say we lack bias, what we lack is the wisdom and humility to engage with both ourselves and others rightly and in a gospel context. And I think it's ironic, if I went around the room or went around the, the, the fire at the men's retreat and we, I asked people, man, do you struggle with anger? Do you sometimes struggle with, with pride? Do you sometimes struggle with lust? I think most men would be like, yeah, I'm a work in progress. I'm still in the process of sanctification. There are times where I struggle with those things, where I, I fall in these areas. But if I were to ask many of the same people, man, do you struggle with racism or bias? Most people will vehemently deny it. No, I'm, I'm, I'm unbiased. I'm impartial. But if you have a brain, again, you have a bias. And the first step to unity and diverse unity is just being humble enough to recognize that. You could argue in our society more people are hurt by unconscious bias than conscious bias because that's how systemic issues of our day get set up right under the nose of, of, of well-intentioned people. But again, this idea of of I'm colorblind. God created color and said it was good. 
Why would I want to be colorblind, right? This, it's, it's beautiful. And it's, to say I'm colorblind is often just a cowardly way to ignore the problem. I saw a TED Talk probably almost a decade ago when, when TED Talks were just becoming popular. I don't remember the woman's name, but, but what she said was, her main point was, let's not be colorblind, let's be color brave. Let's be proactive in, in speaking up. And it wasn't a, a Christian talk, it was a TED talk, but that stance is biblical. It says in Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. Again, claiming to be colorblind is so often a way for us to dodge this call to expose racism. We need to be color brave. And if God has spoken in his word about something, then the church can't stay silent. And there's always shock. When you bring up racism, you start talking about race. There's, there's awkwardness. It, it can be a stretch. But how, how much of our faith walk is being stretched and stepping into uncomfortable moments? Most of it, right? It's the same way with this. It's no different. And just a, how do you practically take this home? Work hard to build relationships with, with people who aren't like you. Not even just race. But again, man, when I was 21 and saved, who would I have invited into my life? Or who would I have not invited them into my life that God would ask me now, hey, invite that person to coffee, meet with that person over there. You know, research on interpersonal attraction suggests that familiarity, familiarity is the most powerful predictor in a friendship. The more we interact with somebody, whether it's just laughing in a, in a, in a line at a grocery store, you look back, laugh with somebody, that's an interaction, the more familiar you become. And the more familiar you become, the more you like them, most of the time. But think practically, right? Unfamiliar is unsafe. The lions brought their uh, grandsons here. One of them's two years old, and he came maybe 30 minutes early and just walked right into the middle of the aisle. Pretty empty in here. I, I walked up, got on my knees in front of him, tried to get eye level with him. I said, hey, man, how you doing? Right, turned right around, walked away, right? Stranger danger 101. Like, it, that's what you teach your kids. So I wasn't mad. I wasn't disappointed. And I was just like, all right, cool. We just want to be welcoming, right? We learned that from a young age. But if a person has interacted with me and he hasn't hurt me, like maybe if I go back to him after service, there's a little bit of familiarity there and he might feel safe. You know, so often familiarity doesn't breed contempt like we often say. Familiarity will actually breed a friendship. <laughs> Sir Peter Ustinov once said, contrary to popular belief, I do not believe that friends are necessarily the people you like best. They are merely the people who got there first. This idea that familiarity is the most powerful predictor in friendship. So throw out an invite to coffee. Reach out. Have an interaction. Look at the people on your call list in your phone. Look at the people who come to your play dates with your kids. Look at your dinner guests. Are they all people that look and think and vote and worship and, and, and see the world the same way you do? Familiarity may ultimately breed beautiful, life-giving friendship. Friendship that sharpens us, friendship that shatters bias, and then unity in this fashion does one more thing for us that I want to hit on tonight. It shines bright. We've hit on this verse multiple times in this series, but it says in John 17, 23, where Christ is praying for the church. He says, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. You talk about shining, you talk about light, talk about familiarity. There's no segue for this. Black holes are scary. 
You know, we talk about fearing what we don't understand. I don't understand black holes. I just know that they can eat up stars, gobble down entire galaxies, and I don't understand how they work. They terrify me. It's this kind of stuff that keeps me awake at night. Gravity is so strong in a black hole that light can't escape. I can't wrap my mind around that, right? When a star gets old, it's internal pressure. So I've tried to read up on it. I'm going to tell you what I've read, and you can try to make sense of it. When a star gets old, its internal pressure no longer holds up against the power of its own gravity, and it implodes. So mass implodes upon itself, where a star the size of our sun can be packed into the space of a dime. Mass becomes so powerful that paths taken by particles bend toward it, and no, zero paths lead away from it. It acts as a giant vacuum of destruction that haunts me at night. It's almost like God provided out in the universe a warning against curving in on ourselves. It's not spacious. It's what packs a massive star into the size of a dime. It's not beautiful. It's so dark that light can't escape. We're called to be a light. But if we develop an inward focus and a pack mentality, we can become black holes, homogenous cliques that do more harm than good. You know, we as humans, we feel value in acceptance and inclusion and in fellowship. You know, when we talk so much about how we, we separate ourselves into us and them and how one of the benefits of that is when you're in a group, you feel acceptance. There is collected resources. But when we take this thirst and hunger for acceptance and we focus with an inward bend on ourselves, that fuels groups, cliques, clans, all of the above. But when we take that focus and we bend it outwards towards others, that fuels ministry, that fuels outreach, that fuels inviting and reconciliation as we realize that other people have the same hunger for acceptance too. But in curvatus in se, Latin for a life that is inward focused. And again, we've said it before, faith that is solely inward focused, it's out of focus. But a life that's crucified with Christ, where it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, it'll connect freely like Jesus did with people of all different backgrounds. Because a life that looks up to God, it looks around toward relationship, toward reconciliation. Not just for the world, not just so the church can look good, not just so we as a culture can say we've got unity, but for our hearts. For our own hearts, for our own faith, for our own lives, for our own relationships with God. A life that connects wildly, widely and diversely is sharpened. A life that connects in this way shatters bias. A life that connects across cultures, it shines brightly. In, effect, in Ephesians 3, verse 10, it's the chapter right after Paul's beautiful passage on unity in Ephesians 2. He says this. He says, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavens, heavenly places. Saying like heaven watches the church to see God reveal his plan. And I believe heaven looks down in its collective diversity, looking for a reflection of itself. All peoples, all tribes, all nations, all tongues, worshiping God. The same thing we're going to do in eternity. If I could have the worship team come up, we're, we're going to step into a moment of worship to close. But I want to read again from 2 Corinthians 6, that passage we read at the beginning where Paul speaks to the Corinthians, and he says, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide, open, spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively.
Come on, if we could stand in this place as, as we begin to close, but we step into worship. I just want to pray that God would open up our hearts so that we can open up our lives. That, that God would, as we look to him, redefine some of these perspectives, some of these bends in our lives. I was reading in Isaiah this week. I'm going to butcher the verse, but it basically says a weak read. God won't break. You know, if we're bent one direction, it doesn't break us, doesn't snap us, condemn us, but there's grace. There's grace. And God, I pray that in this moment, God, you and your grace would both comfort but convict us. God, we thank you that you're a God of peace, but sometimes you, you know that we need to work to get there. <laughs> and God, I pray that you would just open our eyes, that we would make every thought obedient to you, thoughts about ourselves. We're struggling with shame, discouragement, stress, anxiety. God, that those thoughts would be made obedient to you. God, these thoughts that maybe we have of people, <laughs> people on a bus who we can't stand. <laughs> People at work, we struggle to honor. Whole people groups that maybe we stereotype, Lord God. You died for each and every one of them. You call us to be reconciled to each and every one of them. God, I just pray that you would give us the grace we need to live with the perspective we need and the boldness we need to walk it out. So much of tonight, I don't know why, has, has dealt with what goes on in our minds. But God, I just pray that tonight as we worship, we'd be able to take every thought, every imagination, and make it obedient to Christ. Again, those ones about ourselves, those ones about other people. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. Help us to see others as you see them. And God, give us, give us your love. In Jesus' name as we worship.